your mind, the podcast about soccer, mental toughness, and life. My, my name's Brandon Stone, and today we have Tom Ramos from the Houston Dynamo, and he was also with the United States men's national team, had over 80 caps with them. Tab, how are you? Good, how are you? Thank you for having me on. Thank you for being on, Tab. I really appreciate it. Um, there's tons of information out there about tactics and techniques and um, training and physical fitness and diet, but I feel like the sports psychology side, the mental aspect, is a little kind of lacking. So I want to try and delve into your brain and see what we can, um, what kind of, what the magic sauce is. Um, okay. <laughs> so I know you're from Uruguay, is that correct? Yes. So tell me about growing up in Uruguay. You're there till 11? Yeah, I, uh, I lived in Uruguay until about a week before my 12th birthday. Uh, so I was almost 12. Um, I had a chance to, uh, to, to play my whole sort of my, what, what in Uruguay is called baby football, which is from six years old to 12 years old. Um, it's the full, you know, it's, it's, it's the full sort of your full life of development before you go, you know, and, and try out for a professional team. I'm uh, my background a little bit, my father's side, uh, Spanish on my mother's side, Italians. Uh, so a lot of, a uh, lot of soccer from both sides of the family. No kidding. <laughs> Two huge soccer countries. Yeah. Um, so when you came to the States, what was your experience like here? Were you like the best one on the field having that Uruguayan background? Yeah, so when I when I came, um, I didn't really know where to play. So I ran into somebody who saw me play at, you know, at recreation at school and said, hey, you know, you should sign up for a team. You should come with me and and we can sign uh, we can sign for rec soccer right here in our town. And I'm like, I wasn't familiar with what rec soccer meant, but I went and signed up uh, and then eventually it gave me the jersey and I showed up for rec one day. And then I realized rec was on the out. It was on the outfield of a baseball field, and I could literally score goals from, from goal kicks. Um, so immediately after playing a half a game in rec, they basically told me, you can't play here. You got to go somewhere else. So, so there was someone there. You were there too good. Me. What's that? You were too good. They, well, I was just used to playing all the time. I mean, in Uruguay, you know, you're already playing at seven, eight, nine years old. You're playing games that you have to win that are big games. You know, and now I, I'm 12 years old you know, almost 13 and I'm in the U.S. and I'm playing rec where like, you know, nobody really cares that much, you know, like it's just, so it was just a completely different environment that I was used to. <laughs> so how'd you find the next level up? So yeah, so somebody that day, somebody said, you can't play here, you know, we can't take you out of the league, but we can recommend somewhere else to go. So there was someone there who took me to a travel team right in Kearney in the town of Kearney. And, it was, you know, that was the same place, the same club where John Harks was and Tony Miola was. And, you know, that's kind of how we started our, our friendship. Very cool. Very cool. And then what was high school like? Playing? And then high school, I went to St. Benedict's Prep in Newark. Um, you know, it's it's been now, now it's been like a, it's a traditional, traditionally, you know, one of the, you know, top two or three schools in the country for high school soccer um at the time it was just kind of starting um but they were putting a lot of resources into this sport high school was you know we were not one of the best teams in the state at the time but i i think i scored 160 some goals in high school in my four years 
Uh, so I had quite an easy time through high school. Um, and then I chose to go to North Carolina State University, where I also went four years. Yeah, and you uh, had an amazing run there. And then tell me about that first call up to the national, to the men's. I know you played under 20. Yeah. Right. So my first call to the senior men's national team was, uh, was actually in January 1987, but I was injured uh, and I, I had a bad ankle. So I, I declined the invitation. Uh, and then I didn't get called again until January 1988. Uh, so that was the first camp also that Marcelo Balboa was on for the first time. So it was a couple guys that got called on for the first time in that camp that were that ended up being mainstays on the team. So that was my first time. It was in Guatemala. We had a trip to Guatemala. Okay. What was that sense of pride like wearing that jersey? Uh, it was it was incredible. It was incredible to finally put on the jersey of the U.S. first team. You know, it's the first time you feel like the responsibility of you know there's millions of kids and people in general in the country playing the game that are eligible to be in your spot, you know, and you have one of those spots. Uh, and that's just really incredible the first time you get to do it. That's great. It's kind of like the, the cherry on the, the icing on the cake, the cherry on the top of the Sunday. Yeah, until you realize that then the hardest thing is not to make it, but to stay there. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, and then did you always see yourself as a coach post-career or no no I um I always uh, saw myself as a player and and if you would ask me while I was playing whether I'd ever be a, a head a coach I uh, would have likely said no it wasn't in my plans I just I developed a love for the game right after I retired actually when I realized that hey I you know I played these games I played the game professionally for so long and yet I know so little about the game. You know, when I started taking my coaching licenses, I realized that there was so much more about the game that I didn't know. So you started that process and what was your first coaching position? My first coaching position, I was assistant coach of the U9 team. U9. Uh, I started U9 and then I had a couple of years, U9, U10. My first, when I took over as head coach, my first time was a U11 team. And then I did, uh, I did one year of each age group. I did a U11, I did a U12, U13, U14. I did U15 twice. I did U16 and U17, and then as assisting on U18 before I jumped to, to the U.S. under 20 national team. Were so there I did kids that even followed you along those, as you went to the different age, age groups? What's that? Were there kids that followed you? Um, there were a few. There were maybe like four or five that stayed with me through, say, like four years. Uh, the rest of them kind of changed, you know, and, and then I, I went back in age group and then, you know, then I went forward in age group. So you lose and you get all complete new group, you know, so I tried a number of different. One year I coached both under 17 academy team and under 15 pre-academy team. A lot, of, a lot of good experience with the youth then. I got to coach probably uh, about 500 youth games. Wow. Yep. That's amazing. Yep. Um, and then how'd you get to where you are now with Houston? Yeah. So then, you know, after the whole youth thing, I, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to get the job as U20 national team coach as I had already been assistant coach at the U20s with Thomas Rungan. And then after he got let go, he recommended that they hire me. 
Um, and, you know, first they didn't hire me. They put me on the U18s. But then, then uh, Jurgen Klinsmann decided that he really wanted me as, as a U20 coach, and he put me there. Uh, so he, he gave me that opportunity, and then I took advantage of it. You know, I took a U20 team that, that had, been, uh, not, had not qualified to the World Cup the, the previous cycle. And then, you know, I started coaching U20s, and I did four cycles. We went to the World Cup all four times. And we went to the quarterfinals of the World Cup three out of the last, you know, four, the last three years that I was there. So we ended in the, we actually ended ranked, I think it was the last three years, uh, it was seventh, three World Cups ago, and then six and six in the world, both the last two cycles. So we ended in the top six, the last two cycles of, uh, in, the, in the World Cup. So, so it was good showings. We also ended up being champions of CONCACAF the last two cycles which U.S. soccer had never, had never won. Uh, in the history, we had never won a U-20 championship. So, so we won the last two, which, you know, was, was new for us. It was historic. And, and then I felt like after we won the second CONCACAF championship and after, you know, we had made it to the quarterfinals of the World Cup three cycles in a row, I felt like it was time for me to, to take on a new challenge and do something different. You know, I had already been exploring the possibility of going to MLS and, and then, uh, and, you know, Houston came along and, and decided they wanted me as their coach. And I'm, you know, I'm really excited to have this opportunity here. I really, I really like it here. That's great. That's great. What was the biggest difference between playing in the World Cup as a player versus coaching, even, if it, even though it was the under 20? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, you, 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 you take it more in as a coach, you know, because I, I was assistant for Jurgen Klinsmann in the 2014 World Cup. So I was there on the bench with him. And I really got to enjoy the World Cup and see the magnitude of like what it entails, what it carries, how big it is, you know? Like notice things that I had never noticed before as a player. Um, and, and I felt like I, I enjoyed it a lot more as a, as a coach than I did as a player. As a player, you kind of like at the end of the day, you know, you're a professional player, you go into the stadium, you're gonna play your game, and then you get on your bus and you leave and you miss like, you miss a lot. You miss the setup, the fans. The, like, there's so much more that, as a fan, you can you can look at and appreciate. As a as a coach, you can appreciate more. Um, as a, as a player, you you miss a lot of that. Yeah, um, players would probably stay more focused on the job they have to do. Right. And as a player, you take it for granted. You know, you're like, yeah, of course. You know, I'm going to the World Cup, and you're excited about it. But at the same time, you're like focused on the game. You know. And as a coach, of course, you have to win. And there's the pressure that if you don't win, you know, you can get fired and all that stuff. But, but in the end, you're enjoying the moment, you know. You're more mature. Um, you know that these moments don't happen often. You recognize the value of the moments. And that's really important. You know, I had uh, – I don't want to go on a tangent, but, you know, one of my coaches, um, the World Cup team, was Bora Milutinovic. He coached a 1994 World Cup team. And I never really appreciated him as a coach when I had him in 1994 until later on I had him in MLS. He coached the Metro Stars when I played in the New York team in MLS. And I got to know the person. And the person that Bora was was more about, he was more about the people and more about enjoying the opportunities that you have and more about worrying only about the things that you can control. And, you know, all the things that I didn't understand earlier on in my career that I really that I really get now. And so when you, you know, you take, you start to learn from coaches like that. And then you go into moments like this where, you know, I really enjoy being the Houston Dynamo head coach. And 
I want to be the best coach in the league and I, and I want to win the league. Um, but if, if I don't win the league, I'm still going to enjoy this moment because I feel fortunate to be in this situation. And I think, and I hope that, that all the coaches in the league feel the same way. What, where does that desire to win come from? I mean, I, I think it's, it's sort of, you know, when you grew up in Uruguay or you grew up in a Uruguayan family, you have to remember Uruguay was, the first World Cup is in 1930. Um, there were two Olympics before there that soccer was included um, in 1924 and 1928. Uruguay won both of those Olympics. And then in 1930, in the first World Cup, Uruguay also won that. Then the 34 and 38 World Cup, Uruguay didn't participate. And then there was the war. So the next World Cup that Uruguay participated was 1950, and Uruguay also won that. So if you think about it, there's a period from 1920 to 1950 where Uruguay is the champion of the world the whole time. And, you know, when you grow up in this sort of environment, growing up, you're being fed, you know, like, my, my think about it. My dad was born in 1934. So my dad was... Of course, my dad thought of Uruguay as a champion. Like, there's no other bigger country. No matter how big they are, they're not better than us. Like, that's how he, the first 16, 17 years of his life, like, Uruguay didn't lose. Like, that was the, for him, it was we're champions of the world. And that was confirmed in 1950. And then, so it wasn't until 1954 that Uruguay actually gets knocked out of a World Cup. And it's like, okay, well, now it's been 35 years of, like, being, and so, that's not, that's not a, like a, a run like the Chicago Bulls. You know, now that we're in the last dance sort of mode, right? It's not the Chicago Bulls of seven, eight years, nine years, 10 years. This is now three and a half decades. Three and a half decades of, of, of being champions. And that, that's, that's a whole generation and a half. So, th th so then now all the kids that are growing up after that, they're growing up knowing, hey, you know, we you know, the goal is not to like qualify to a World Cup. We want to win. And yeah, of course, Argentina is a big country, but they don't have any World Cups. You know, that's how, you know, Uruguay's got the World Cups. And then Brazil started to win in 1954. And then they, they went and they passed Uruguay. And Argentina eventually won, you know, 1978 and then 1986. So they tied Uruguay. Uh, but Uruguay continues to be the champion of South America. They have 14 South American championships. Argentina has 13, Brazil has like 10 or 11. So Uruguay continues to be like a big champion. And, and that's something that you just grow up with. And, you know, so there's no, you know, if you think that a little country like that with 3 million people can beat the world, then of course, any game you play, you want to win the game because you know you can win the game. So well, I think Croatia was even smaller than that. What's that? Croatia was even smaller than that. And they just won. Croatia is about five million people, and they went to the they went to the finals, right? So that's that's a good accomplishment. Uh, still, almost double the size of Uruguay, but but it's a good accomplishment. And they did it once. It's one time. You know, Uruguay has fourteen South American championships. I, I don't know if Croatia has any European championships. You know, and they went to one World Cup final. You know, so it's it's a little different. Obviously, now it's more difficult than before, but but that's sort of the mentality. You know, that's where it comes from. So it's basically a mindset that was ingrained in your culture. That still is. That still is. There's no Uruguay. There's no big rival that, you know, I can tell you this. I mean, I'm not part of the Uruguayan national team. I know a lot of their coaches. I follow them a lot. I have a lot of friends there. Um, but I can tell you this. When Uruguay goes to Brazil to play a World Cup qualifier, they're not going for a tie. 
And not many countries would go to Brazil thinking, hey, we're going to go win this game. And most of the time, they don't win the game because it's difficult. But it's yeah. not like they don't win it because they're not mentally prepared. They're ready. They're ready to go. They're going to win the game. The belief is there. The belief is always there. Beautiful, beautiful. Let's talk about confidence. How have you, as a player, developed your confidence? And then how did you take some of that process and use it as a coach to help your players with confidence? I mean, confidence is really important. You know, when, when uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes difficult to watch an athlete that's, that's really good lose their confidence and all of a sudden become a bad player of whatever sport, right? It happens in every sport. Um, you have to have a strong mentality to keep your confidence because inevitably you're going to make mistakes eventually and inevitably you're going to play poorly. And it's how you react to those negative situations that determines what kind of player you eventually you are. Because I think anybody can play a good game and, and we all can play poor games. Uh, although you can argue, I mean, when would you ever see Messi play a poor game? Right. But, uh, for most, most mortal, mortal people, um, you know, you, 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 you play poorly, you know, you take sports like baseball and you see, you know, the guys fail two out of three times, you know, and they're still, those are the great ones, you know? And so in soccer is not, it's not a whole lot different. You know, you fail a lot of the times and you just have to get up and go. And, and the guys that get up and go the most, you know, and that are willing to accept whatever challenge they have, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little guy, you know, I'm five foot six, you know, the, the game of soccer is, you know, it's not necessarily a, a little guy's sport, you know, like there's fast guys, there's strong guys and, you know, you kind of have to get out of the way. So you have to, you know, if you're, if you're afraid, it's not going to work for you. And so you have to have confidence, you have to have belief and you have to be strong, you know, and strong doesn't mean, you know, physically strong is mentally. And that's, you know, and, and you have to overcome that because inevitably, you know, if I, if I'm going on a run down the line, and I'm going to go in a 50-50 challenge with somebody who's six foot three and incredibly fast. Chances are, if we get there at the same time, I'm going to lose. And so I have to be smart about that. I have to react first. I have to get there first. I have to touch the ball first. I, you know, I, ha I have to. I have to. Otherwise, I don't have a career. You know, whereas the bigger guy can maybe get away with getting there a little later because he can stick his foot out or, you know, the, the, the sort of the little guy can't. And so that you need to have the mentality of, you know, I don't care. I don't care. You know, and, okay, you're bigger. That means when I take you on one-on-one, -on -one, it's going to be more difficult for you to turn because you're bigger. So it's trying to take advantage of even your weaknesses, you know, and you try to take advantage of those. So, so the, the mental part is, I think, the most important of all sports, the more important than skill. I think it's more the, 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 the strong mentality is more important than skill. I must agree with you there. Um, in terms of confidence, do you remember a specific player who you did help their confidence turn around? Like it was good, it dropped, and then you did something specifically to help them and you saw the result? Um, well, I mean, I can tell you, like, let, let's just say more recent. So I had, I had uh, Uli Yanez on, on my team on the last U20s. And, you know, he now played, he, today he was on the bench for Wolfsburg in Germany. Um, so, you know, he, he came to my under-20s and he was a little bit reserved, a little bit shy, not willing to have the confidence to take people on as much. 
and I basically, I basically said to him, and I, and I really liked the kid. I met with his parents. Um, I really wanted to bring him along because I believed in him. He had just gotten cut from our U17 World Cup team, um, or he didn't play at all for them. Something I think he got cut, actually. So, and I picked him for the U20s playing a year up. And I said, you know, I, I really believe in you. I really believe in your skill. But, you know, I don't know if you, if you believe in you as much as I believe in you. And you need to believe in you. And so uh, he came a couple camps, and he wasn't great, to be honest. And I finally pulled him aside, and I said, hey, look, Uli, you know, here's one thing that's really important. If you're going to go in the game, and every time I put you in the game, and, you know, the team makes an effort to find you in that wing position one, in that wing position one v one and you can't take your man on and beat him and like I know you can, I don't really need you here. I don't need you here. I can bring somebody else. The problem is there's not many people that can do what you can do, but you have to believe that you can do what you can do. So from now on, when you get the ball, I want you to take the guy on. Take him on and get in the box. And don't worry about anything. What's the worst that can happen? Worst that can happen, you lose the ball. If you lose the ball, try to win it back. That's all. Just make an effort to win it back. That's all I'm asking. So I don't care if you don't beat them. I want you to make the best effort to beat them. And then if you lose it, just win it back or try to win it back. That's all. And I tell you why he started, he started to come along. It was something that he needed to hear. And in the next camp, he shows up. And now every time he, he, the ball comes to him, he's going one v one, you know, and he's beating his guy and he's becoming dangerous and he's taking shots and made it all the way to the world cup. And he was a, he was a big help to the team in the world cup as a younger player playing a year up. Um, and I took him anyway because I thought, you know, when we played France in the World Cup, France was one of the favorites to win the World Cup last summer. And I brought him off the bench and he turned, he and uh, I made two substitutions. I brought Uli and uh, Justin Rennix in at the same time with 20 minutes to go and with a goal down. And those two guys won the game. And so, I mean, I couldn't be more proud of the turnaround he had. And then after that, he signed a contract in Germany. So now he's in Germany, you know, and hopefully he's making a lot of money and all that stuff. But hopefully he's uh, – I'm sure he's got a lot more confidence than he had before. That's great. That's a beautiful story. Yep. Um, I, I was about to say I bet you felt so proud when you, right when you said – I love so it. Proud. I love it. Like even, you know, today I was looking at the Wolfsburg roster and I see him on the bench and I'm like, I'm so proud of him. Because I feel like some of these kids were my kids. You know, just like him, Alex Mendes, who just got transferred to Ajax about six months ago, the same. You know, I feel like, you know, these kids are like, I feel like they're my kids. You know, there's kids playing at Bayern, there's kids playing at PSV. There's, there's so many kids that, you know, that I'm so proud of that, that, uh, that hopefully I help them a little bit, you know, because some you help and some you just make them wake up, you know. So, um, but I'm really, really proud of all those kids. Yeah, some it just takes that extra word of, encouragement for them to look in the mirror and see greatness yep tell me about leadership how do you develop leaders in your team uh wow how do you develop leaders you mean you can you can only i i think for me it's is you you can only find if you have them or not or if you believe that that someone has that leadership quality in them even if they don't believe they're a leader um but you can, you can kind of say, I, I don't think I would want to take credit for making anyone a leader um, because that's, a, that's, that's something that I think people have inside. It's just that sometimes you discover it in somebody. Um, sometimes you identify people who can be a captain, for example, even though they may not think they are. But then you see that just by example, people follow them and that's a leader. Um, some people are vocal leaders. Some people are leaders by example. Um, 
but this is this is a team sport you know a leader needs to be one that brings everybody together because obviously you know one you know one person doesn't win the game it, it needs to be everybody yes in terms of leadership how do you use fun in your trainings to it really has nothing to do with leadership i just messed up how do you use fun in your training how do you make your trainings more fun to keep the monotony uh, away uh well sometimes you surprise the players by just saying hey you know we've been doing all this tactical work today we're just going to play soccer tennis you know the players come out and we have all these fields set up and we just compete and then we'll say you know there's a prize for the winning team so the winning team will have their picture on the twitter account of the club for example you know with the dynamo so they get their picture up there the losing team will carry the goals or we'll clean up or you know stuff like that and it's fun it's fun for the guys because number one they're super competitive so they all want to win uh and it's also they love the fact that a team loses and they get to make fun of the team that loses so you know it helps you in a number of different ways so yeah, there's, you know, for me, you know, having the players, having the players be happy is is really important to me, you know. And if I if I can break the monotony, uh, for me, that's better than than any tactical work that I can do. But that's just me, you know. There's coaches that are just, you know, everything is about tactics and matchups, and and of course we do that. You know, I have excellent assistant coaches too that make all the recommendations. But there are days when we just say, okay, you know what, we need a day off. Let's go to cart racing or let's, you know, let's do something different, you know, like whatever. You got to go do something different. Those are good team bonding examples, cart racing. Sure. What other, what other kind of team bonding? Uh, All kinds of stuff. I mean, we've done stuff where like, you know, it's you and a, and a partner and you have to tie your, your shoelaces with each other and you have to walk across the room who can get there first. We've done blindfolded where you put, cups as if it's a minefield and and you have a team of six let's say and they all have to direct each other to the person who can't see and direct them across to make sure they don't step on a cup because otherwise they lose you know and, and you develop teamwork you develop fun um we have ones where you have you know say three rows of players where you have um you you have a like a like a pitch a pitcher of water in the front uh, that's full of water and one in the back that's empty and they all have to pass water to each other to get it all the way to the back see who does it first so there's teamwork but you can't go too fast whoever fills that you, you know their pitcher first wins and you know they, so there's 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 a lot of things that you can do that are fun and that develop that develop the team those are those are fun ideas i like them uh, i help out with uh, the local university here and right outside of tulsa and claremore and I'm going to suggest a few to, the, to those with the coach. I like it. Tell me about an adversity that you faced that ended up being the best thing that happened to you. An adversity that ended up the best thing that happened to me. Um, I mean, I, I don't know that I suffered any that, that, that I could say was the best thing that happened to me. Um, there's been some failures along the way, uh, like everybody else. You know, I got caught from the 1984 Olympic team, you know, and I could say, hey, you know, I came back stronger after, you know, the coach pulled me aside. I was the youngest player on the team. I think I was only 16 or 17 at the time. And it was back then the Olympics, you could use professional players. 
So it's much more difficult to make the team. Like now it's under 23, so it's a little bit easier. But before it was like all ages. So he caught me and he said, Tab, you know what? You're doing great, but, you know, we just got the release of another professional player. And it was two weeks before the, the, the or a week before the cutoff of the Olympics. And, uh, and I had already been in the Pan American Games, which qualified us to the Olympics. So I had been on the team for a while. And he said to me, basically, hey, you know, you've, you know, you've done great, but, you know, you're so young, you'll have many opportunities to go to the Olympics, you know. And, and he just caught me, and I made the 1984 Olympic team after. Uh, but, I, but I can't really say that because I got cut, I tried harder. I, I wouldn't have tried any less hard if I made the 1984 team. I would have wanted to make the 88 team. Then, uh, let's see, in Spain, when I was in, in Seville, I played at Betis, and I didn't do well, especially my second year there. And then I got injured, so the club wasn't too happy with me. And then we kind of mutually wanted to find my way out. I was in the middle of a four-year contract. And because of that, I ended up signing the Tigres in Mexico, and I loved it. I really loved it. I thought that was a great change for me. Monterey? Yeah, in Monterey, and the fans were amazing. And I just have such great memories of Tigres. We won the cup there. Um, we made it to the Liguilla, you know, to the semifinals. I mean, we, we just, we had a great year my second year there. And I, I think that was something, you know, it didn't go well for me at one club and ended up being going great at the other. So there's some situations like that. Um, but there, there's nothing that I can tell you was hard enough for me other than, Hey, you know what, just my upbringing, you know, I played with shoes with holes in them because I didn't have shoes because my parents couldn't get me shoes. Cause you know, all those little things that make you try harder because you know, if, you know, you have nothing, it's, you got to make it, you know, like there's no choice. You got, you got to make it through, you know? And yeah, the things like that. But I think those are things that just life gave me, you know, and you just deal with what, you know, obviously, as you know, you got to deal with whatever life gives you and you got to be strong about it. You got to smack yourself in the face. You got to, you got to go. You just got to go. I mean, and I'm sorry. And I know things are more difficult for some people than others, as you know, but you, 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 this is the only life we all have. We got to snap out of it and move. You know, I, I wish I was taller, better looking, better player, faster. You know, like there's so many things we can always wish no matter what. And in the end, there's one common denominator. You, you, you got to work hard. No one's going to give you anything. No one gives you anything. You know, and then you, you make people around you proud of you. You know, you make a, you, you can be a good example for your kids or, or for your wife or for your, for your family that and you, you gotta be, you gotta be happy with that. You know, like my parents always wanted me, my dad always said to me, you know, no matter what, uh, no matter how much soccer you play, you, you gotta get your college degree, no matter what, because the education is something that stays with you with the, for the rest of your life. You're going to kick the ball for a little while, but, but your education stays with you forever until the day you die. And so for me, it was really important to get my college degree. And I did, you know, I left NC State after four years, obviously, because I signed a professional contract, but I kept taking online courses till I graduated, you know, like I, something that it was really important to my parents. And I felt like that, that was really, became really important to me. So when I travel with the national team, instead of maybe, you know, just being, uh, hanging out by the pool doing nothing, I'd be there with a book, you know, I like, I'd be doing my homework or, you know, and I didn't need it really because I was already signed pro and I felt like, you know, like everybody else, you know, you signed pro and now you think like, what do I need my education for, you know, but I felt it was important to my parents. So I worked hard at it, you know, I went back to NC State, took all the tests I needed to take and I finished, you know, and that was important to them. So for me, that's another, that's, 
that's an achievement, you know, just like winning the cup with Tigres, you know, getting my college degree was, was probably harder, you know, than, than winning took the long, cup. Took a lot longer, huh? Yep. Yep. I bet your, your parents were pretty proud of you. Yeah. I mean, my, my parents loved it. You know, uh, my dad had, had his, he was a, um, electrical engineer, you know, so he comes from like a little bit more of an education background. My mom, I don't think, I don't think she graduated from high school, my mom. Um, so, you know, it was, you know, it's sort of a, so it was important to her, you know, too. Yeah. Um, let's talk about goal setting. Do you set goals for yourself? Do you write them down? Do you just kind of have an abstract image of them in the back of your mind? What's it like for you? I I uh I don't I don't write them down. No. I mean my goal is always to to in the end to hold the trophy. And sometimes you have the weapons to do it and sometimes you don't. But you know, I'm here with the Houston Dynamo. We haven't made the playoffs the last five years. But my goal for this year is to win the championship. How we're gonna do it? Well, you know, it comes one step at a time. First we gotta make the playoffs. That's the only thing that matters. So the first goal is to make the playoffs. I told the team that. We want to make the playoffs. That's all that matters. We can't think past that. And then we, our next goal is going to be to hold the trophy. That's, that's why we play the game. So I, I don't like to start a season without knowing what my, my goal is, but my, my goal is always to, to end up at the top. Yeah. And more, more often than not, you fail. <laughs> so, you know, like, so like I'm 53 years old now. So when I coach players and players tell me stuff about games, well, I can say, well, yeah, we, you know, I lost more games than you've played. And that's learning. Unfortunately, that's how you learn. You don't, you know, it's difficult to learn from wins. I know that for a fact. But it's, it's, it's really easy to learn from losses. So you can always find the reasons you lost. And those make you better. True, they do. Um, do you visualize, use visualization? Uh, not really, not really. And I've gone through some, some teams where they had, we worked with psychiatrists who would make you visualize in moments you may be nervous, you know, to visualize like a peaceful place or, you know, visualize yourself winning the championship in the end, that kind of thing. I don't use it myself. I do use it for my teams. So I like to show a picture of them holding a trophy, or I like to say, we're going to do this. This is what it's going to look like when today is over, you know, and then, and then it's nice walking into the, you know, walking into the meal room and actually seeing the picture of what actually happened. You know, like I've lived that with teams and that's, that's really nice. That's cool. So you went from what it was going to look like to what it did look like. Right. So I can tell you the last group I coached the U20s, I showed them a picture of the last group that had won and said, when we come back tonight after, after playing Mexico in the final, we're going to be looking at a picture of us holding the trophy, not the last team. That's going to be you. And by the time they walked in, I had already, the photographer had already gotten a picture of us. The moment you lift the trophy and all the confetti goes up, yeah, we had already a picture in our meal room and it was up on the screen when the players came to dinner, it was already them holding the trophy. It was beautiful. Loved it. That's poetic. Yeah. Yep. Very cool. Well, Tab, I know you said you have a, a meeting coming up here at 815. Yes. So um, I think this is a good place to wrap up. I wanted to thank you so much for being on. Um, it's been very a lot of fun. Yep. Um, Me and too. And I hope to see you lifting that trophy at the end of the season. All right. Thank you. That would be awesome. I'll come back on if we hold a trophy.
Well, okay. I'll come back on if we don't too, but okay. <laughs> let me know. Thank you All for right. having me on. Thank you. All right, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Yep.